This morning, I'm reading from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 22 through 25, and that's found on page 926 in the Black Bibles around the room. And if you do not own a Bible, please feel free to take this one as a gift from us to you. When I'm finished reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And in response, we'll just say, thanks be to God, which is just our way of expressing thanksgiving for having God's word in front of us. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day and for your word. We praise you today as the one true God, creator and sustainer of all things. We ask that you would open our hearts and our ears as we read your word and hear your message preached today. Guide Pastor Mark as he preaches that his words would only be your truth. Amen. Good morning, Livingstones. Happy New Year. Look at you, bubbly. You guys are ready. How many of you have given up bread and then already got bread back? How many? <laughs> Didn't take long, right? Thou shalt not live without bread. I think that's how the verse goes. So, well, it is a new year. I'm Pastor Mark. If you're here and uh, you're new, I welcome you. I'm glad you're here. And, um, and I love this day because this is the first Sunday of 2020, the first Sunday of this next decade. And what I love about that is the potential that's ahead of us, right? And, and, that, and, and that could be good or bad. I mean, there's just some things ahead of us over these next 10 years. And I love this morning because it, in, in one year from now, we'll be talking about what God has been doing and started doing this very Sunday in our lives and in our church. I love that. The stories that we will share of the evidence of God's grace in 52 weeks from now is going to be amazing. God's at work, and, and he's doing something in our church and in our community, and I can't wait to share those stories. And then if you think over this next decade, you know, what will your 10-year picture look like on Facebook uh, 10 years from now, right? Um, I'm going to look like a catcher's mitt. It's going to be bad. And, uh, but it's like this is, there's like so much potential in front of us. And it's like, man, it just gets me excited. I don't want to waste it. I'm, man, I'm pumped for this year. It's my first full year here in Nevada. Um, I'll be hunting a year from now, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know, congrats. It's like my baptism, you know? And so, man, I, there's so much ahead of us that, that God is going to do. And we're starting this brand new series on the attributes of God. And I cannot think of a better way to start this next year and this next decade than being on the solid ground of who God is, right? I mean, it, 
It just matters that much. Who is God when everything else is uncertain? I mean, this year, um, we are going to get, it's going to be about, none of us are going to log on to Facebook. We're going to be annoyed. It's election year. Everybody's post is going to be terrible, right? Some of us are not going to be friends by the end. <laughs> no, it's going to be weird. It's a hard year. Everything is going to kind of come to the surface, and it's going to be full of tension and the whole thing. Now we have international tension. It didn't take long into 2020 until things begin erupting on the other side of the continent and with the U.S. And so there's just a lot of uncertainty. we got a big year ahead. And, and whether or not it was an election or whether or not there's war, whatever, it's a big year because God is doing something in us. There's so much potential. And I think in the grounds of uncertainty, because none of us have any kind of certainty, really. It's an illusion of control, is it not? We kind of think we have it, but we don't, which is why we need the solid ground of the attributes of God. And that's, that's where we're doing, that's where we're going over the next six weeks. And we're going to be talking about who God is. And in God's nature is stability and strength and solid ground. And if we can get our minds there and our hearts there. And we just recognize in the attributes of God, uh, God is different than us. That's the whole point, right? And that's, we'll be looking at all of the ways in the next six weeks, not even all of them, but six of them, over the next six weeks in which God is distinctly different from us. And, and it's like, man, if we could just get to know how God thinks a little bit more, what a great resolution. How do I know God more this year? And how will knowing God more change my year, change how I function in this year? I love biography. And I love reading like strange stories about people. And, and I read one thing that said that one of the things that, that CEOs of Fortune 500 companies have in common is they take cold showers. That's just a thing. You want to be successful on a big company? Take a cold shower. Paralink. I don't want to be that successful, right? <laughs> I, I just don't. I like my hot shower, right? I know. I, I think I heard from Dave Ramsey that the millionaires of like the world buy their jeans at Walmart, right? They, they're, they're not out rolling and, and throwing down big money for, you know, whatever. Uh, they're, they're, they're buying cheap jeans from Walmart because they, they know how to be a millionaire. That's, right? They have that thing. Did you know Ben Franklin took cold air baths? He just went to his backyard naked and, and took this is, this is an air bath. That's what he did. It's strange dude, right? Henry Ford ate bread and roasted roadside vegetables every day. He Literally, somebody would go out and pick something on the side of the road, and they would roast it, and that's what he ate. Successful, right? You know, Bill Gates rocks in a rocking chair for, for hours when he's really having to process. A rocking chair, right? Uh, there, there's a famous inventor in, and, uh, out of Japan, um, Nagamatsu. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the floppy disk. Most of us... All right, you're like really 2020. We're talking about floppy disks. All right, uh, it you know it was it was it was a thing and it was a big deal at the time and I miss it right. But the inventor of the floppy disk, he's he's invented more than 3,000 things. He says he gets his best idea 0.5 seconds before death. So he like free dives. He he does all kinds of crazy things just to get on the edge in order to come up with this amazing idea. These are the traits of some of the most successful people. 
people that we are using their name, people that we refer to, they, they, they have a certain way about them, and that's very true of God. And sometimes the things that God does are just really strange. They don't make sense, but they, but they are unique to him. If you really want to know about the world and know about God, we have to know what God is like. John Calvin, in the very beginning of his greatest work, which is called Christian Institutes, he starts with this uh, phrase about the knowledge of God. He says about all knowledge, actually. This is what he says. Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and ourselves. Then he goes further on to say that you, you cannot know yourself apart from knowing God. And so all of this self-discovery and journeys that, that, we're, that we are on and, and, and the, the idea of finding ourselves, it doesn't exist apart from knowing who God is. You cannot know yourself apart from knowing who God is. Which makes it essential to know who God is as we walk through this year. And, for, and you know that this is, this is like an extended thing. We're doing six weeks in the attributes of God 2020, and in the first six weeks of 2021, we're also going to do the attributes of God. But in this first six weeks, there's these two categories of God's attributes, and maybe you've heard of them. It's, it's a big word that theologians like to use, which is communicable and incommunicable. The attributes of God that are not communicated to creation and the attributes of God that are created. Incommunicable are those things that belong only to God, and they're not, they're not shared among creation. Maybe there's hints of it, but it's not shared. We don't share these things with God. And then there's the communicated attributes or the communicable attributes. And so this six weeks, we're doing the incommunicable attributes, those things that exist in just God himself. What's his nature by himself in uniqueness? And then in 2021, we're going to be doing six weeks on those things he shares with us. So stay tuned. Now now you got to stay. That's the point. You got to be here in a year from now to see how the series ends. <laughs> so we're out of Acts, and you can say a lot about the attributes of God, and, and we're going we're gonna to go in on a passage every week, and we're not going to ex- exhaustively look at every piece of who God is. We can't do that. He's infinite, and uh, you don't have enough Sunday for that, right? Um, so we're, we're going to look at one passage, and what does this particular passage teach us? What is the primary um, goal of this passage in terms of, uh, of the attributes of God. And so we come to Acts chapter 22. And I love this because you have this, this moment, this teachable moment where the Apostle Paul is walking through Athens. And you know, and, and you know whether you've been there or not, you know there's these monuments, there's these amazing structures, the, the area, the area, the area, Areopagus, oh my gosh, heads up, I'm dyslexic, all right, so, um, so you have that, <laughs> first resolution, say that word, right, Areopagus, and, uh, and so you have these structures, and they're amazing, they're beautiful, they're huge, they're big, and Paul is walking through, and he has this teachable moment, because there's this altar, there's this plaque, and it says to the unknown God, and it's this whole thing has been created to worship this God that is not known. And as we just saw in Calvin, you've got to know God in order to, 
know yourself and you got to know the God that you're worshiping to understand the significance of your worship. So when it comes to knowing God, even before we get to this first attribute we're going to look at, Paul gives us some understanding about knowledge here and knowing God here. And the first assertion that Paul makes is that you can know God. That, that is, it seems so simple, but just think of the, think of the idea and think of, of the conflict that we have as a culture where really there's, there's a lot of people and, and some are Christians and some are not. And, and, and by and large, we're all kind of opening our hands going, I don't know, this is what I believe the truth is, but how could you really know? And many of us may have an agnostic family member or friend or coworker where they're like, the issue is not whether God exists, the issue is what God exists. And that's our conversations. Ten years ago, it was like, well, is there a God at all? And, and then we, we've hit a much more spiritual understanding of the world. We've kind of realized that, that this idea of just strictly scientific way of looking at the world isn't good enough. It doesn't work. And now we're in this place where it's like, well, there's, there's probably a truth out there. And maybe many different religions get to kind of one truth, the whole idea of different blind people feeling a different part of an elephant and trying to describe it, right? But Paul makes this assertion right in the beginning. He says, I, I passed along and I observed your objects of worship and I found this inscription to the unknown God. And then what does he say? He takes this moment, he goes, okay, well, what you therefore worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. You can know God this year. You can be confident of God this year. In fact, this whole Bible and this whole reason we gather here is so that we can be confident in who God is, convinced in who God is. What, a, what, a, what an amazing reality. It's so simple, and maybe we're quick to pass on it. What this amazing, like if this God exists, and he is supreme in every way, and you can know him. And not just know him, you can be confident about him. The second assertion that Paul makes here is that our knowledge of God is connected to our worship of God. See, what I, what I love here is he's walking around and, and the, the Athenians and the, the Greek, they were, they were known for their worship. They were incredibly pious people. And, and what makes this situation so unique is that they were incredible worshipers, so, sacrificial, like gave up a lot. They, they gave their money. They, they worshiped this God that they didn't even know. They're, they're incredibly pious to a God that they're like, He's an unknown God. We don't know him. We, we can't know him. We don't understand him. We don't know what he's like. We, we don't even know his name. But man, we have this incredible worship towards this God. And they were known for this worship. And Paul doesn't come along and go, man, you're, you're great worshipers. You're so good at worship. And goes, that, that's all that matters. No, he comes in and goes, your worship is lacking because of your knowledge of the God you're worshiping. That, that God has a concern, a desire that we're worshiping people, that we're, that, that we're robust in our love and our passion for him. And we, we go after him and we worship. But that worship has to be connected to true knowledge, real knowledge, which is the second assertion. Let me proclaim to you. Therefore, what you worship, he says, you're worshiping is unknown. I proclaim to you what you can know. Not only can you know the Bible, but knowing God is 
tied to worship. And true knowledge of God leads to true worship of God. Otherwise, we're just spinning our wheels. And for 2020, we don't want to just be excited worshipers. We want to know exactly the impetus of our worship. We want to know why we're worshiping, why it makes sense. And and for that to be true, you got to know God. And and in his book, J.I. Packer, one of my one of my favorite theologians and authors, spent a long time studying, read everything he's ever written. I'm a big fan of finding one theologian and going deep with him. J.I. Packer, he's my, he's my bro. And in his book, Knowing God, he he develops this idea of true knowledge and true worship. Because when I say worship, maybe you think of singing, or if I say worship, maybe maybe you think of like. Being by yourself and your Bible and a pen and a journal and, and you know, like a, a worship playlist or something like that. But what I like that jump that, that J.I. J. Packer pulls out is he gives us this more robust version of worship. That if you have true knowledge of God, this is what he says. And he goes into it quite deeply, but these are like four tenets. He talks about it early in his book. And I'd recommend everybody to read this book in 2020. But he says this, those who know God have great energy for God. A kind of zeal and a passion that is sustained in life through many ups and downs. A great energy for God. Not just an energy for church, but an energy for God himself. Those who know God have great thoughts about God. We were just talking as a family around the table and and, and just having an honest conversation and, and one of the kids was just saying, I I just, am, I just I don't know if I really care that much about God right now. It's like, let's talk about that. He's like, I just don't, I don't think of him. It's not, and when I do think of him, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything in me. And the answer to that is not, come on, you know? The answer to that is, let's talk more about who God is. Because when you get to know him, all of a sudden you have these incredible thoughts. What, what is your thought life about God? Is it, is it inspiring? Does it bring amazing thoughts about who God is and about the world? Or is your thoughts about God just kind of minimal, nominal? True knowledge brings great thoughts about God. The third thing he says is those who know God, true knowledge about God, have great boldness for God. It's amazing how quick we're like willing just to kind of give up. Like, I love Jesus until then, you know? And we're like, mm, that, that hurt. That was a little tough. That was crack across the line, God. Now I'm, I don't even know if you exist now, right? And we, we jump so quickly to kind of giving up on faith because things don't go our way. But when you really know God, you, you get this incredible boldness for God. And, and then lastly is those who know God have a great contentment in God. We'll come back to that in this text because it comes, it comes back up. But this is how he defines what worship looks like if you really know God. Boldness and energy and thoughts and contentment. Now that's worship. And that's not the kind of worship that they had here. They had a, they had a lot of doing worship, but it wasn't centered in real knowledge of who God is. God wants all of you and all of your worship, but centered in who he really is, not not just busybodies worshiping God. And so we're going to take these two verses, 24 and 25, and we're going to talk about these these four ways in which God is seen in this attribute 
that, that we're calling the attribute or theologians call it's called by many means. The name we're going by is the attribute of God's independence, self-existence, self-sufficiency. And these assertions that Paul makes, and here's what's, here's what's amazing is he talks about the knowledge of God and the worship of God, and where he goes is not necessarily where we would be prone to go. He, he goes right into God's independence, God's separateness, God's uniqueness in his self-existence, and this forms this basis. And this particular attribute, independence, it helps all of the other attributes come into play. It helps them all be understood. This is like, like not, not that one that rules them all, not like that attribute, because God is all things at all times. He's not, he's not in levels or in moments. He's not like, well, now I'm God the independent, and now I'm God the great, and now I'm, you know, it's not like that. He's not Wizard of Oz, right? He's all these things all the time and in, in his nature. But, but this one helps the other ones unfold and make sense of it. And Paul's going to make four assertions, and it starts with this assertion. So what, therefore, you worship is unknown. I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. This is kind of one thought broken into two parts. One, Paul says God is, is um, distinct from creation. And two, God is Lord over heaven and earth. The phrase heaven and earth is a Jewish way of saying the universe or everything. So this very first point that Paul makes that brings us to true worship is the God who made the world separate from creation, and he's Lord over everything. And the first, the first idea of God's independence is that God is independent of creation. Like, well, well let's talk about what that means. And, and my hope in this whole series, but especially today, is to make sense of this in a very practical way. Why does it matter that God is independent of creation? So the statement is, God is uncreated. He's the creator of everything. And at the same time, he's Lord over creation, which means he's not inside creation. He wasn't created along. He wasn't the first creation and then everything else. We're told in John chapter 1 that without Jesus, there was nothing made that was made, right? Which means if Jesus was created, that would mean he would have to create himself first. Well, how do you do that? You can't. If you've ever tried, you can't will yourself into existence and then create everything. The idea of John 1 and the idea of what Paul is saying is Jesus, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are uncreated, separate, distinct, and they rule over creation. They're not inside of it. That's, a, that's essential. That's important. This is known as his self-existence. God exists as an uncaused being. Everything else exists as a caused being, meaning for you to exist and for you to be born. I mean, we know like how you got born, right? But you were caused, all right? But, but if you go behind the scenes, you were caused because God has put the, the, the motion of creation into being so that we could exist. God has orchestrated all of these things, and we're our caused being, which means we can't exist in ourselves. We need him. But God is an uncaused being, which means he has nothing necessary for his existence. Think about that. I would say this. Nothing is necessary for God to exist. 
but God is necessary for everything else to exist. And you, get, you begin to get that little thought, right? And it begins to germinate in there. You're like, I exist because God exists. And if God did not exist, I would not exist. And this is really the, the essential problem with evolutionary theory or Big Bang is you have to have a cause for anything to exist. Things don't exist without a cause. That's nature. We know this to be true. You cannot replicate something becoming that is not no matter how many times you roll the dice. But God exists. This also, this also kind of goes into why God is eternal. How could God have existed forever? Because he's an unnecessary or uncaused being. And if there was a thing that caused God to exist, that would be God, not God. Are you with me? So if there was another thing or a, 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 a natural law or a physical thing that brought God into existence, then we shouldn't worship God. We should worship the thing that created God. This is his self-existence. God needs nothing to exist, but we need God. We are a caused being or a secondary being, and he is an uncaused, necessary being. Listen to how Tozer puts this. Man is a created being, a derived and contingent self who of himself possesses nothing but a dependent, but is dependent each moment for his existence upon the one who created him after his own likeness. The fact God is necessary, the fact of God is necessary to the fact of man. Think God away and man has no ground for existence. It's powerful. Now, why? What, what does it matter? I want to, each of these parts of this attribute, I want to point you to some really good news. And then I want to talk about how we struggle with it because we do. And we wrestle with the attributes of God, do we not? And, and we wrestle with God's independence and we wrestle with our dependence. And so the first good news of this reality that God is self-existent is that God will always exist. That is great news. There will, that, that means no matter what happens in our life and this side of eternity or the next, on this side of life or on the other line of death, that the existence of God continues always. That God needs nothing but himself to exist. So then there is nothing that can be removed from him that would cause him not to exist, which would ultimately keep all of his promises from becoming ours. He only needs himself. And we go, praise God for that. Because that means he's always dependable. It means that whether I live or whether I die, I am okay in the hands of a God who will always exist. It's how I can walk through this life and through death, knowing that on the other side, my faith will not be put to shame, but there's a God who exists. And he will always exist. And that I will never be disappointed by that reality. And, and, and in line with that, the good news is nothing can defeat him. Nothing can diminish him. Nothing can remove him. And nothing can dethrone him. And we say amen. That's right. Now, but we struggle, don't we? We struggle because if we're honest, we don't want to be dependent. We don't like the idea of dependence. And sometimes that dependence looks like pride and Sometimes it looks like false humility, but we like to be our own people. We like to make our own decisions. 
And the problem with God's attribute of independence and our human heart is that we want that attribute. We want to take it from God and make it our own. We don't like the idea of a God being totally self-existent and me being utterly dependent. I shape my life, and many of us will walk into 2020 shaping our lives around the idea that I am my own person, I am my own man, my own woman, I, I'm, I'm who I want to be, and I'm going to make decisions according to who I want that person to be, which is trying to take the attribute that belongs to God for yourself. And we don't like the idea that we have to revolve like a planet around the orbit of God's independence. We want God to circle our independence. And we want other people to circle our independence. And so we hold people accountable and we get angry and frustrated and we, we cut people out of our lives if they don't orbit us. These are all our struggle with the attribute of God's independence. We don't want to be dependent creations. We want to create God in our image. But we learn we are utterly dependent and there's nothing that can change that. Secondly, verse 24, the second statement about God and, and independence. So first, God is independent of creation. Second, Paul goes in, <clears throat> does not live in temples made by man. He doesn't live in temples. Now remember where Paul's at. He's standing literally in the, in the front of this massive temple that is erected for the worship of God and, and for, for housing whoever this unknown God is. And if you look at Greek mythology, right, they were, they were independent presence. They, they, they lived in Olympus or they were on earth or they were somewhere else. They were in Hades, right? But they were always in one place at one time. They, they lived somewhere. Olympus was their home. And, and Paul knows his context. And he's going, let me, let me introduce you to God. God is independent of place, which forms the basis for the attribute of God being everywhere, which we'll get to week five, I think. I'm going to hold off on, on more of that. This is a little bit different. God is independent of a place. The point is, is God is not confined. The, the point is, is God is not a part of the universe. God is not in us in the way that some, some people talk about that or, or the deity that lies within us or the godness in us. He, he, he doesn't live in a place. He's not confined inside the universe. And, and it speaks more to that is that he cannot be confined. He cannot be contained. There is nothing that you can build for him in which he'll go, oh, this is nice. I'm moving in, right? Lazy boy that all day, right? He doesn't fit. He doesn't fit. In fact, you remember this, and, and this was an allusion to you. Remember the moment that the temple was dedicated in the Old Testament, and the glory of God came to fill it, and it drove everybody out of the building. They couldn't even be in it because the, 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 the thickness of the glory of God, and it like spilt over, it couldn't contain it. God cannot be contained. He's independent of place. He's not like the small gods of Rome or the small gods of the Greek or the small gods of our culture. Great news in God's independence of place is this. It means God present. 
What do I mean by that? Well, I love our I love our title for this reason: the God who is there. It it invokes this idea that God is personal and present. He's there. Think about that. Now, if God can be housed in a temple, where would He be? He would be there, and you'd have to go to Him, and you'd have to find that place. You'd have to go on a pilgrimage, my, and find significance and meaning in in some form of a journey that at the end of that journey is God himself and enlightenment or whatever it might be. But God is not a place. He's not in a place. He can't be contained by a place. He's not over there. He's there wherever you are. That's what's beautiful is we don't come here on Sunday in order to meet with the God that we can't meet with all week long. God is there. And that's been significantly different through the Old Testament than the other gods of the nations around Israel. God was always there. Now, there was a temple, and people would go to the temple, but why? So that God could atone for their sins. They would have to go to a place for atonement, but not, not because God was only found in the temple. And that stands so far different than the culture that Paul's talking to in the many different nations, is that God is not housed in a place you've got to go find him. We're not going to a rock where he may have been once. And there's more presence. There's no more presence of God here than in your bedroom. There is no more presence of God right here than when you're driving. Because why? Because he's independent of place. There's nothing that contains him. He spills over everywhere. It's not that God can be in multiple places. That, that, that's, a, that's illogical. It's that his being is so massive, he cannot be contained in any one place. And so therefore, he's everywhere. And the good news is that he's present. And you can meet with him anywhere, and you can be with him anywhere. And wherever you are, God is there. Not in the things, present. Love that. That's great news. It means that God hears every prayer. How many times in 2020 will you cry? A lot. God will see every tear. Psalms tells us that, that God is near the brokenhearted, which doesn't mean he's like, oh, somebody's in danger. You know, and he, he like, you know, like, you know, he doesn't do that. Funny, but he doesn't do that. The reason why he's near the brokenhearted is because when you're brokenhearted, you don't have to go anywhere to be present with God. He's with you. That's amazing. What's our struggle? In the same sense, we don't like the idea that God can make his way into every part of our life. Don't we love the idea that nobody can see us in our car? Don't we love the idea that nobody is there with us in our room? Nobody is there. Nobody can see the inner world. I'm thankful you don't know what's going on in here. I'm thankful I don't know what's going on in there. But I'm thankful, and I struggle with the fact that God does. I, I would love to contain him, wouldn't you? Put him in a Tupperware, pull him out when I need him. I would love that, but the, I struggle with God's independence because it means there is nowhere I can go in which he's not. What does David say? If I go to the very bottom of the sea, the Mariana Trench, God's there. 
And if, and if I could go light years into space to a galaxy far, far away, God would be there. God would be there. I, can't, I could not escape him. I could not run from him. I could not get away from him. And I wrestle with the idea that God knows every intimate detail of my life, my behavior, my heart, my mind, everything about me. And I'm like, God, whoa, I need to put you on the shelf for a little while because I got some decisions to make. And I don't want you interfering because I got some plans. I got some pleasures. I got some desires. And you're getting in the way. I got some independence to walk, and, and I don't want you around. We wrestle with the independence of God. He's present, which is great. And when we want him to hear our prayers, we're thankful he's there. But what about all the times you don't want him to hear you, see you, know you? He does. Self-existent everywhere. Thirdly, verse 25, Paul says, nor is he served by human hands. So he cannot live in temples made by man. There's nothing man can do to contain God, nor is he served by human hands. And it goes on as what? As if he needed anything or though he needed anything. And this is powerful. The, the third aspect of God's independence is merely that God is independent of need. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. That's a, that's a freeing thought and frightening because I want to be needed because I'm needy. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? Like, you're like, I love that you have needs because I can meet them, but in reality, I'm meeting my own needs by meeting your needs. You know, like that's, that's what we do. That's how jacked up we are, right? God has no need. That's amazing. God doesn't need you. God is not waiting on you to accomplish something that he is unable to accomplish without you. God is not needing your prayer. Your praying is for you. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't need. He's so free. He's so free. And we'll come back to why that really matters, but he's so free. He's like, I don't need you. Why? Because he's self-existent. He's in, he, he has all the ability to exist perfectly apart from us. He has no Needs at all. God is independent of every need. He lacks nothing. Listen to Psalms 50. God's like, if I were hungry, by the way, I'm never hungry because I'm God. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for the world in all its fullness is mine. God's like, there's things you're not going to know. If I ever wanted some Doritos, I'm not going to tell you because you'll just mess it up. If I want me some Doritos, I'll get them myself, right? Like, that's, that's God. Like, if I were hungry, I, God does not owe us an explanation. God does not need us. Listen to Romans 11. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Anybody? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What advice have you had for God? You're like, actually, God, just a piece of advice. God's like, okay, you tell me. You know, like he's, he doesn't need us. Now, what I, what, what I love about this is people will look at this and maybe you'd be prone to go, oh, so we don't even need to serve God. Oh, no, no, no. The Bible is full 
of us being asked or called to serve God. Serve God. As for me and my family, I will serve the Lord. So as now, now Joshua's like, well, but Paul said he doesn't even need me to be served. You know, like they're having this argument in heaven right now, you know. The Greek gods of the Athenians needed the applause and praise of people in order to exist and be powerful. If worship of the gods diminished, then so would their ability and their eternality. They were dependent upon the praise of people. And that's what they were taught. They were like, you want the gods to exist, you must worship the gods. And the more you worship, like, I believe, you know, like then they exist. They have more power. And if you want a powerful God over the Greek people, then you need to worship God. And the more people that worship God, all of a sudden now they have more power and they live forever. And they're able to accomplish the things that they want their gods to do. Paul goes, no, no, no. God doesn't need anything. And he especially doesn't need your praise to exist. He's not lacking anything. And, and what's really powerful about that is it's not that we serve or don't serve. It's why we serve. And that we don't serve God because he needs us. We serve God because he exists. We serve God because his very nature in, in, in invokes us to serve and to worship. Where I think sometimes we get this idea of Romans like, oh man, I, I can give God counsel. I can give God a great gift in which he'll be proud of me. No, no, it's, it, God's not lacking anything. So then why do we serve him? Why do we give to him? Why do we give our lives to him? It's because of his very existence, his very being. Think about it in the lens of Exodus 3.3. Moses is like, okay, I'll go to Pharaoh, but what will I tell him? And what does God say? Tell him, I am have sent you. Do you know what the question is? Why should Pharaoh serve you, God? Why should he obey? Why should he serve you? Why should he bow down and, and give you this glory? Why should he serve you in this way by giving your people a pass out of Egypt? That's the question. And the answer is, tell him I am. Tell him I exist. The, the actual Hebrew is funny because it's I is who I is. God's Popeye, right? I is who I is, which just means I'm present, I exist, I'm here, and this is the only form of me now and here. And then, so then why should Pharaoh serve? Because God is. Why do we serve God? Because he is. Why do we give our money and say, God, do something amazing with this and the year, year of in gift and all of that? Why do we get, make offering? Why do we talk to our neighbors? Why do we give up things in our life to to serve the kingdom of God, because God is. And when we get trapped into thinking that he needs me, then all of a sudden I'm serving for the wrong reasons. And ultimately, I'm not hurting God because he's not lacking. I'm hurting me. And what, 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 what's the good news? The great news about this, I love this one. If God is not lacking, it means there is no frustration in him. It means there is nothing that is impeding his happiness or satisfaction. God is totally happy. God is totally satisfied. 
And, and when he created the world, he was absolutely satisfied and happy in himself. The Trinity, they just loved it. There was not a moment in eternity past where they're like, hmm, we're getting kind of bored. We need to, we need to make some people. Because they're crazy. You know, like, they'll entertain us. Like, that's not, that's not what happened. Literally, God's like, I'm so happy. I just want to share it. Have you ever, you know, it's like when you love something so much, you just want to give it away or you want everybody else to love it too. Like, that's how shows work. Like, I know what, like, people are into because they're like, you got to watch this show, you know? Like, and they're not happy unless you do. They're like, I can't believe you I'm watching it. you got to watch it right now, you know? <laughs> they're all about it. They love it. They want you to binge watch and waste your life and do nothing and wear pajamas for 10 days in a row. Like, they, yeah, that, they, why? Because people talk about the thing they love. They share the thing they love. Isn't that why we post on Facebook? We're like, look at these cute kids. We're like, okay. If you say so. <laughs> I love it. I love it. See, I don't want you to know what's in here. But we're like, look at this is this is my smoking hot wife, and this is my kids, and this is my da 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 da. And all we're doing is going, man, I love this thing, and I want you to love it too. And that's, that's really what happened in creation. God's like, I love us. We got a great thing going. We are amazing. Right? And, and without any selfishness or pride, God is totally, he's like, man, I am happy. I just want to share it. The great thing about God is he's so satisfied and easily pleased, and he, he's doing everything he does with any unmet expectations. He doesn't expect anything because he's not lacking anything, which means whatever God does in our life, you absolutely know that it is not him doing it against you. It's him doing it for you because he's not using you to gain something. God is not using you to be more God in your mind. He's not like, all right, well, here you go, boom, some suffering so you can really see how big I am, you know? He's like, I'm fine. I'm doing some stuff in you to love on you, and you can trust God because he's not lacking anything, nor is he using you for any unmet expectation or need. How many people in your life do you know that have pure motives for you? Even the closest people. I mean, even as parents, like, isn't it true that we're just so, so many different kinds of motives? I'm just trying to be significant and special and be loved and the way I love you or whatever, right? We have these Messed up motivations. God never loves outside of perfect satisfaction and happiness. But where do we struggle? We struggle because we want to earn God's favor, don't we? We want to have a piece in the pie. We want to be able to say, I did this, and now you do this. We want God to lack something so that we can be significant to him. And if I could just prove that God needs me, then I will feel good about this life and the life to come. And we're trying to get God into a contract so he'll owe us something so that we can hold it over his head and say, God, I did this for you, so now you have to do this for me. We struggle with God's independence. God's like, I'm totally happy. I don't need to do that. Fourthly, the fourth thing about the independence of God, look at what it says lastly. It says, since he himself gives to all mankind life, 
and breath and everything. This God who cannot be contained, this God who cannot be served because he needs, this God who is outside of creation, distinct from creation, self-existent, is a God who gives. Now, I, I, I entitled this part of his independence as God is independent of restraint. And the reason I did that is because God can give whatever and whenever. And if you look here, it's like this God who doesn't lack, this God who we can't get into contract with, this God who cannot be contained, this God gives Life, breath, and everything, which everything in the Greek means everything. That's how that works. Congrats. See? 2020 is going to be a great year. You learn something new. God gives everything, which means if you have it, he gave it to you. But the reverse is true, isn't it? This is the part we don't want to talk about if you don't have it because God hasn't given it. Oh, that stings. But God is independent of restraint, isn't he? Which means there's there's nothing that God is not able to choose or do or decide. He's the giver. And he gives everything. And everything we have and everything we don't is in his hands. I mean, if we could get any part of God's sovereignty to a place in which we could love it, love it. Deuteronomy says that God kills. God heals. Think about that. That's, that's blasphemous to some of us to say. But he's independent. He's free from restraint. God can do anything in his creation because he's separate and self-existent. He owns it all. Isn't that what he said? If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the world and its fullness is mine. He's independent of restraint. And whatever we have or whatever we don't, God is at, is at work behind that, making decisions. Now, the good news is this. God gives. That's great news. We don't have a God who's selfish, who keeps himself from us. We have a God who shares himself, reveals himself through all of the authors of the scriptures so that we would know him and understand him and be confident in him. God gives. That's amazing. Because God, this verse could say, God is not held by, ten, not, not place. God is independent of creation. God's independent of need. And God, he didn't want to tell you anything about himself. He's not selfish. Out of his happiness, he shared himself. We have a God who gives. We have a God who shares. We have a, a God who has given us more than we ever deserve because we deserve hell, sin, shame, and death. And he's given us life and grace and whatever our life holds, what's, that's the good news. God gives and shares himself. The struggle is contentment, is it not? J.I. Packer says that those who really know God have great contentment. Our struggle is in being content that God has the ability to decide and to choose apart from restraint. He is totally independent. He owes us nothing. And whatever God does, and our life is good. Whatever decision he makes, regardless of what our idea of it is or thought of it is, 
it is good and it is right. And he owes us no explanation. He can do whatever you whatever he wants. I mean, our three months is just us going, all right, God, what have you given Christy now? <laughs> right? First, it was potential of cancer and that she'd be gone in a year. And now it's heart failure. And we're just like, okay. And it, they're, they're totally separate and they're coming right after the other. And God owes us no explanation. God's giving. God's doing. What does Job 121 say? God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of God. That's our position. I don't, we don't know what 2020 is going to hold. Every year, on the first sermon of the year, for 23 years, I have said, we might bury some of us this year. Blessed be the name of God. God gives and God takes away and he owes us nothing because he's independent but by his grace, he has shared himself. And sometimes we get to know and sometimes we don't get to know. But he is independent of restraint. He gives breath. He gives life. And he gives everything. And we say, I don't know. I don't know, but I know he's happy. I know he doesn't need. I know he's not trying to use me. So blessed be the name of God. And he's not responsible or accountable to me. We, owe no, we cannot hold God accountable to anything. He is his own, and he is above, and he is great. So if you have a God who is independent in this way, maybe the question we could ask is, what would be the most powerful expression of the attribute of God's independence? And I would say the most powerful expression of God's independence, which is not motivated by need or want or unhappiness, but totally in himself and in self-existence, and for no other reason but his own existence, the greatest act of an independent God would be to give that independence up and become dependent, motivated by absolute love, to save us from the consequences of our independence. Let me say that again. The greatest act. Now, this is where the gospel becomes going, okay, I'm, I'm feeling bold. I'm feeling energetic. I'm feeling because I'm beginning to understand how the attributes and how the gospel, the coming of Jesus and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus begin to make sense. If God is totally independent, there was no need for him to take one step towards this, towards us, but he took all the steps towards us. So I'd say like this, the greatest act of an independent God is to give up that independence and become dependent, motivated by absolute love to save people of their independence. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. What if that someone was the most independent, self-existent, unique being in the universe. How great does God love you? Purely motivated out of self-satisfaction, God would give himself that Jesus, above all creation, would become flesh and embody himself to save us from the inside 
that the one independent of need became a baby to, to be the most needy and served every single day of every single way, ultimately to serve us even unto death. The God who does not live in temples would call his own body a temple and then send his spirit to live in us and call us the temple of God. That God would give us his very son and his very life so that we would have him, not because he needed us, but purely because he loves you like crazy. The independence of God is radical in light of the dependence that was necessary for our salvation. So he gives life, he gives breath, he gives his son, he gives forgiveness and an eternal future. Maybe your first prayer in light of this and in 2020 could be a prayer that says, God, I want to be independent, but I'm actually really dependent and I'm really needy. And I've tried to fulfill my needs in every created thing, but not in you. You give me everything I really need. Forgive me for pretending that I'm independent and lead me to contentments, contentment in a, by being a creature who needs you. It's a great prayer. It's a great way to start this year. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning, for this text, but most of all for who you are. And I pray that as a church, as individuals here, we would be full of great energy and boldness and satisfaction and contentment in knowing who you are. And we are utterly dependent and needy for our life, but especially our spiritual life. Thanks be to God that the most freest, independent being in the whole planet became dependent so that I can be free from my sin.